you look at American I'm just saying, why don't we do what we've done successfully throughout our history? Our rate of immigration today is actually below the historical average. So I'm just arguing, let's get back to what has worked so well for our country. So this isn't some pie-in-the-sky thing. It's just, let's do what's worked successfully for us in the past and for other countries today. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. Everyone seems to agree that America is a nation of immigrants. Beyond that, however, actual immigration policy remains a contentious and often partisan topic, from insistence on a border wall between the United States and Mexico to growing calls for the abolition of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, common ground hasn't been easy to find lately. That may be because, as the Mercatus Center's General Director Tyler Cowen recently put it, immigration is hard. And, quote, it's worth thinking about why immigration policy poses such tough dilemmas and how to fix them. Here to do just that, we have two top immigration policy experts. First, we're joined by Christy DePena, Director of Immigration Policy and Senior Counsel at the Niskanen Center. Thanks for joining us, Christy. Good afternoon. Next, I'm happy to welcome back to the show Dan Griswold, Director of the Program on the American Economy and Globalization here at the Mercatus Center. Welcome back, Dan. Glad to be here, Chad. So with the very explicit disclaimer that there's no way we're covering everything there is to cover about the issue of immigration on this podcast, even what's happened this week, as we were just talking about before the show, I want to start off with kind of a 30,000-foot level question before we get too far into the weeds on anything. For each of you, what does ideal immigration policy look like 10 or 20 years from now? And you can be as cynical and specific as you like, or you can be big and utopian here. Chad, we need to move in the direction of more legal immigration and temporary migration to the United States. One, we face serious demographic issues. We're aging as a society. If you look at U.S.-born workers to U.S.-born parents, that cohort's actually shrinking already, and it's going to shrink by 8 million over the next 20 years. So without immigrants and their children, we'd already have a shrinking workforce. How do you achieve 3% growth if you have a, a shrinking workforce? Also, immigrants bring entrepreneurial energy. They bring uh, human capital. They're more likely to start businesses. They're more likely to file patents. And that's especially important in the high-tech area. So we, we need immigrants. If we increase legal immigration by, say, 30%, which I've uh, proposed, that will address all these issues. We'd have a stronger economy. Uh, all the worries about immigrants displacing American workers or driving down wages, when you examine them, when you look at the literature, it, it just ain't so. And so I think we need to embrace that. And, and on the lower skilled end, we need low skilled uh, workers as well. On the farm, in the service sector, there maybe we can emphasize more temporary migration. Uh, we need more visas for, for farm workers and, and they need to be all year round. It isn't just a, a seasonal thing. So if you do all that, it'll not only benefit our economy, and I'll just end on this, that's the best way to combat illegal immigration. If you give a legal alternative, they will come in legally. We can know who's here. We have better control of our border. The historical evidence has been when we increase legal migration to the United States, border crossings fall, if not plunge. It happened in the 50s when we increased Bracero uh, visas. It's happened more recently when we've increased uh, low-skilled uh, visas. So unfortunately, our process seems to be pushing us in the opposite direction 
which I'm sure we'll get to shortly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that sort of utopian view of immigration. But I think I would be remiss not to mention that optimal immigration policy is relative. And relative to the current situation, I'd say that, you know, walking back changes to asylum law, uh, legalizing the dreamer population, and, you know, kind of returning to the status quo at this point actually might be an aspirational goal. Because we've seen sort of a, a very gradual but purposeful chipping away at all of our legal immigration programs. And that that stretches from H-1Bs to students to tourists to work authorization programs, entrepreneurs. We've seen it relating to refugees and asylees. So even now, this, the status quo would be better than what we have. It's always nice to start with such an optimistic view of, uh, <laughs> of a policy area. I just want to raise some of the issues, and, and I don't know if this is like a lightning round kind of version of this, but you, you both kind of mentioned some things I want to hit on so that we're all on the same page with our listeners. So I'm just going to go through a couple of claims that I hear all the time, and I just want to get your all's thoughts. Is that true? Is it, is it not the case? Is, is there something else going on here? And the first one I want to start off with is maybe this gets to your point, Dan, about the, the rate of immigration. The one thing I hear more than anything else is immigrants are flooding our borders, right? That we're overwhelmed that so many more people are coming to the United States now than ever before. And so we've got to do all these weird, maybe drastic things to kind of handle that. So from your all's perspective, is that the case? It's definitely a perception, but when you look at it, it, it again, it just ain't so. Illegal crossings of the border, they were much higher before the Great Recession and in the 90s, uh, you know, in, in a million or more, and now we're, 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 we're much lower than that. It, the illegal population actually hasn't grown for about a decade. With Mexican migration, you've actually had net out-migration of Mexicans uh, in, in recent years. When you look at legal immigration, it's been pretty consistent, a little more than a million green cards issued each year. When you look at net migration to the United States, legal and illegal, it's about 3.3 immigrants per year per thousand population. The average over U.S. history is 4.3. A century ago with the great migration over the Atlantic, it was uh, more than double that. If you look at Australia, Canada, other advanced countries, they have uh, more immigrants coming in per year relative to their population. So we're, we're well within the norms of American history. We, our capacity to welcome and absorb more immigrants is, is there. We need them. Chad, you know, that's a, that's a really poignant question. I agree with everything, again, that Dan said, but it also kind of highlights the power of the narrative that is coming from the administration. And that's that, you know, there are tons of people flooding our borders, and it is a very powerful and pervasive narrative, and it rings well with the American public. And they see pictures of, for instance, asylum seekers, which I will highlight is um, a form of legal immigration, and they get worried and, and they believe in the messaging that is coming out of the White House. And that's a big part of the problem, because to really explain to them what's happening, you have to listen to the statistics that Dan just rattled off, and that is not as powerful as reading a tweet from the president. I've got a couple more of these examples that I want to get your all's thoughts on, but I want to linger on the asylum issue because it's come up a couple of times. It's at the heart of the family separation issue, which is the reason a lot of people are paying attention to immigration right now and probably will be for for a little bit. Maybe just help me understand how are asylum seekers, and you can talk about refugees as well, how are these groups that act like immigrants in some ways, how are they similar, how are they different, and, and how is that relevant for our policy? Basically, asylum is a legal 
immigration policy whereby someone can come to the border of America. They can claim that they are afraid to go home and then they go through a series of uh, legal steps in order to prove the authenticity of that claim. If they demonstrate that they are in fact eligible for asylum status, they are allowed to stay in America, um, they can eventually become citizens. But the road to getting there is extremely difficult. And although the administration presents that many people are fraudulently getting asylum claims, and that's a reason for reforming that policy, it actually um, is, is quite the opposite. Asylum is extremely difficult to get, legally speaking. There are plenty of people who are coming here who are credibly afraid to go home. But that doesn't mean that they are necessarily going to get legal asylum protection in the United States. And in many cases, they're returned home. And that's why we see high numbers of asylum denials. It's because we have an incredibly hard standard to reach for most applicants. And unfortunately, our asylum law doesn't cover most cases of people who are very afraid for legitimate reasons to return to their home countries. I'll just kind of get back to my list then. We'll probably return to asylum later on. But just in terms of that narrative that you were talking about, Christy, the other one, and this is, again, we were discussing even before the show started, this one can kind of be a bipartisan talking point for everyone who's skeptical maybe of increased immigration. That's this idea that immigrants drive down wages and take jobs from Americans. Maybe this is particularly true or a concern uh, among for low-skilled immigrants. I'm, I'm, so I'm just kind of curious again, is that the case? If so, how do we address it? Yeah, this, this issue has been studied and there are reasons why immigrants do not depress the general level of wages. They actually have a surprisingly little effect on overall wages and that's because immigrants don't tend to be like us. They have different skill sets. They don't have the language skills that native-born Americans have. They're, they're overrepresented on the high end. Think a college physics professor or a computer scientist, and they're overrepresented on the lower end, uh, workers without a high school diploma. So immigrants don't compete against the vast majority of American workers. In economic terms, they tend to complement American workers rather than substitute for them. And the result is lots of studies have been done and they find that for the vast majority of Americans, 90% or more of American workers, immigrants either have no effect or a small positive effect on our wages because they complement us and they allow us to specialize in things we do best. The one group of Americans who do tend to compete more head-to-head with immigrants are lower-skilled Americans, adult Americans without a high school diploma. And even there, the effect isn't huge. It's 1% or 2%. And of course, if you're an adult American without a high school diploma, you're getting it from all sides, right? We're a more technologically advanced economy. The answer is to stay in school and upgrade your skills. Just by getting a high school diploma, your wages on average will go up 37%. Isn't that a better approach than all the contortions we're doing walls and e-verify and all that to crack down on illegal immigration. Just let them come in legally and encourage Americans to upgrade their skills, which, by the way, they do. Studies also show as the presence of immigrants go up in an area, Americans are more likely to stay in school and upgrade their skills. You're more likely to maybe move into a management job where you've got, like on a construction site, you've got the language skills. You can manage other people rather than just being one of the workers. So the story on wages is it's generally positive if limited effect. And Dan's highlighting also a great opportunity for a creative and pragmatic sort of 
policy, middle-of-the-road trade-off, and that's that if we are going to increase low-skilled immigration, we could couple that, for instance, with better educational programs, better workforce development programs. And those have been proposed in the past, but not necessarily in as comprehensive a way as could be done moving forward. You talk about sort of looking for compromise middle-of-the-road solutions, which I think is what a lot of people, even within their own parties, are grasping for right now as a way to sort of satisfy all the different factions competing in the immigration policy space. We saw one example of that in the House recently. Uh, There was a a piece of legislation that was meant to be sort of this compromise among different factions within the Republican Party. Uh, It didn't go well, uh, is how I would would put it. I'm kind of curious if you all can kind of walk me through sort of how that came to be, uh, maybe why it failed, and sort of what that says for the future of, of policy change via Congress. The vehicle and how it came to be is is really is really quite interesting if you're interested in legislative processes. And we all um, are. <laughs> so, you know, by virtue of a discharge petition, it seemed as though Congress was doing a great job at responding to the public. They were listening to the public outcry about passing some type of protection for the DACA and the Dreamer population. They were responding to some of the urgency that um, many advocates have been trying to convey to lawmakers on the Hill for now many months. Unfortunately, that was sort of chipped away at um, in the development of this compromise bill. And it evidenced itself even all the way up to the midnight hour before the votes on this compromise bill when they were considering huge changes to the bill that included adding uh, additional agricultural workers, potentially adding E-Verify provisions, potentially changing the family separation provisions that were in there. And, And ultimately, it ended up going back to the original version. But it is demonstrative of the fact that there is significant competition in the party. There is there is just a lot of discourse about what is the right way to move forward on immigration policy, even within the Republican Party. And that's not to say that they should not reach across the aisle. They, in fact, probably should. Um, and, and we should be looking more towards what a moderate proposal could look like between moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans, rather than solely tailoring to the outskirts of either party. I think there's a working majority in both chambers of Congress to get some sort of compromise through. The problem is the Republicans are deeply conflicted on immigration. A majority of the Republican caucus in the House is more restrictionist, even though I don't think that reflects the majority of the American population or a majority in the House. So they kind of get locked in. They were just negotiating with themselves. And somebody said they were they were looking for a unicorn, <laughs> some some bill that would satisfy the hardcore restrictionists who don't want to legalize any, even the dreamers who are a very sympathetic population. And then the more moderates that are running in competitive districts that have Hispanics and, you know, in Florida and Texas and elsewhere. And, and they the more restrictionists really weren't, at the end of the day, willing to offer enough there. And so the, the compromise fell apart. And of course, he had the the additional confusion of the president taking, I think, four different positions oh, wow. on the compromise bill over the last 10 days. First, he was against the compromise, but it, was, it seemed he wasn't quite sure what he was talking about. And he said, pass either one. And then he said, oh, once the more hardcore one failed, he said, oh, don't bother. It's a waste of time. And then at the last minute, I think just the night before the vote, in all caps, a tweet in all caps, he said, pass this bill. 
uh, and it ended up getting, I think, a maybe a, a slight majority of the Republican caucus, but well, well short. The bottom line is we need to look for some sort of compromise that legalizes the DACA population, all 1.8 million of them. We need them for our workforce for all the reasons uh, we talked about. Some kind of sensible border security. I think a $25 billion for a wall would be a complete waste of, of money. The compromise is there, but of course, our political process uh, just doesn't seem willing to embrace it. One last thing, you know, the Senate voted in February four different immigration bills. One of them was legalizing the DACA young people and giving the president $25 billion for his wall. To me, that seemed like a win-win for the president. Two things he says he wanted. The White House came out strongly against it. How do you reach some kind of compromise in that toxic political atmosphere? I don't know. I want to linger a little bit on the DACA issue because it's come up several times. I don't think that's an accident. Both of you have kind of mentioned it's in some ways one of those no-brainer issues that everyone seems to be on board with it at some level, but that we can't kind of get policy movement in a positive direction. So maybe for our listeners who are just trying to get their heads wrapped around immigration, I'm wondering if you guys can kind of give me the the, the top line view of sort of what is this DACA? Who are these dreamers that we're kind of talking about? And maybe what's what's the path forward for them? When we talk about the DACA population, we're specifically talking about a number of individuals who got work authorization and had basically deferment from being deported from the country uh, under a policy that President Obama put into place in 2015. That population has expanded to include dreamers, the people that we call dreamers. And basically what they all have in common is that they were brought into the United States uh, as children by their parents um, through no fault of their own. And they have grown up here. They know no other home. They speak English. They have gone to our schools, some of our law schools, some of our medical schools. There are teachers. Um, they're involved in our communities. And there is uh, significant economical and social reasons that we want to keep this population in the United States. Okay, Christy, if I could just add, by, by, by definition in the law, they've, they've finished high school, right? They, mm -hmm. they are either going to school, working, mm -hmm. serving in the military. Right. They've been vetted. They're as close to a kind of no-brainer population. They're American in every sense right. except their documentation. Right. And in many cases, you'll hear anecdotal stories about some of these children who had no idea that they weren't American citizens until they, for instance, went to get a driver's license when they were in high school. There's a lot of public support for this uh, population. I think last September, a poll by Fox News showed that 85% of Americans supported a pathway to citizenship for this population of people, which is an important distinction because in some of these bills, there have been permanent protections, conditional legal status for some of these eligible kids. We are in favor of a pathway to citizenship. We think it's very important for the contributions, um, not only to our economy and to our society, um, but it, it really is kind of the right thing to do. And we hear a lot of pushback from the administration about uh, people's willingness to sort of become American and really offering them a pathway to citizenship is the way to allow them to uh, acclimate to America better. Yeah. And, you know, for all the reasons we talked about, the demographic needs of our economy, the workforce needs, here, here are 1.8 million young people. They're, they're educated. They're, they've proven their worth to society. We should embrace them. The idea of deporting them to a country they don't even know and where the language is spoken, they may not even 
speak to me is is just unthinkable. You know, one little bit of evidence a couple of weeks ago, the Social Security trustees came out with their report, and it was pretty grim reading in terms of the insolvency uh, of of the at least the unsustainability of Social Security trust fund and Medicare to fund benefits as promised. The trustees looked at immigration. And they specifically looked at the DACA issue, and they determined that legalizing the DACA population would have a significant short to medium term effect on the Social Security Trust Fund. How could it not? You have 1.8 million workers coming in, paying into the system at the beginning of their working lives. In the long run, it's a smaller effect, but still positive. By the way, immigration overall, they also looked at different scenarios, one of them being a 30% increase in legal immigration, uh, which is exactly what we proposed uh, in a Mercatus paper uh, last October, which you can find on our our website, Reforming U.S. Immigration to Promote uh, Growth. That in and of itself would take care of 10% of the shortfall in the Social Security system. Wouldn't solve it, but to to fix this huge problem, uh, 10% of it is significant. So it just shows legalizing the DACA young people, it's not only the right thing to do morally, but it makes so much sense for our country economically and in every other way. And I'll throw in, too, uh, that's to say nothing of the cost that we would bear having to deport such a huge population of people as well. Those are fantastic points. I, I think we've talked about a lot of different discrete avenues for legal immigration going back to asylum seekers, Dan, your initial points uh, kind of in your your utopian vision of the next 10 to 20 years of immigration policy right there at the beginning. I want to kind of, as we come on the last couple of minutes of the show, give you guys a little bit more opportunity to talk about that. What are the avenues of legal immigration that would make sense to expand at this point? Where would you like to see work done maybe specifically? And this can be from the administration's perspective, from Congress's perspective, or both. First, let me just push back. The the term utopian has been used a couple of times. (laughs) To me, if you look at American, I'm just saying, why don't we do what we've done successfully Throughout our, our history, our, our rate of immigration today is actually below the historical average. So <laughs> I'm just arguing, let's get back to what has worked so well uh, for our country. And by the way, uh, what countries like Canada and Australia and Switzerland and others uh, have embraced even more. So this isn't some pie-in-the-sky thing. It's just <laughs> let's do what's worked successfully for us in the past and for other countries today. Well, to answer your question then, uh, <laughs> I think we need to expand legal immigration, make green cards more available. I wouldn't mind by both expanding the total number of green cards, and by green cards we mean legal permanent residency and after five years you qualify for citizenship. I wouldn't mind some shifting of the composition more towards employment-based migration. I'm actually open to some restrictions perhaps on broader family-based categories, adult siblings, parents, if the trade-off is at least as many and more employment-based visas. In the United States, only 14% of our green cards go based on employment. The rest are either uh, refugees or two-thirds go to family-based immigrants. If you look at Canada and Australia, both of them, it's 60% going on employment-based going to employment-based immigration. So expand the numbers, shift the composition more towards employment-based, and then increase the number of temporary immigrants. On the high end, H-1B, that's the pathway. It's a dual intent visa, so they can be here temporarily for three or six years and then either go back home or get in the process of getting a green card. 
and letting in more uh, temporary low-skilled workers there. You'll probably have more of a circular flow, let them work here for a few years and go back to their country. That That's the way to fix the immigration system to the benefit of the vast majority of Americans. I think it's important to also sort of defend some of the the family-based visas and the refugee visas that we give out because in many cases when you when you hear them described in that way it's easy to think that those are not inherently merit-based visas and there is significant literature that suggests that um, many of the people that receive family-based visas many of our refugees many of our asylees um, end up contributing both economically and socially to the United States so it's not to say that even um, and and I don't disagree with Dan in in uh, potentially making a shift to more employment based visas, but we also have to acknowledge that many of the visas that we are giving out in some of these other categories are also merit based. It's just not what they qualify as when they are applying for a visa. So I think that's one um, kind of important distinction to make. I think one of the other things to kind of highlight is that we are seeing a shift from the administration in how our humanitarian. Uh, immigration law is working. And it's highlighting really the control that both agencies and particularly the DOJ have over what our asylee program looks like and what our refugee program looks like. And in many cases, people are very, very upset about the outcome. And it is again to kind of highlight that this is the responsibility of Congress to fix this law. If they don't want to give, you know, this administration or a similar administration, this type of leeway in being able to change uh, our humanitarian law in basically one broad stroke, then they need to take it upon themselves to change that policy because the effects have been um, pretty significant. We have seen roughly 14,500 refugees admitted this year, uh, and we have a cap of 45,000, which is still very low uh, that's in down comparison. From to, what it's been in the past, it's been right. up to 100,000 in right. the past, hasn't it? Right, right. And, you know, basically the rest of the world is compensating for us. But there are significant um, strategic reasons that we want to maintain those programs. There are national security reasons. There are humanitarian reasons, human rights reasons that we want to bolster these programs um, and maintain them in a way that uh, the administration is not going to let us do. So once again, this this kind of falls on Congress to fix. Um, but it it's kind of another important uh, legal immigration challenge to highlight. And the evidence on refugees is that they are not a security risk. They're one of the most vetted populations we, we let in. Uh, yes. They often have to wait one or two years uh, before we let them in. And, and just to make a general point too, Im- immigrants do not drive crime rates higher. <laughs> It, An important immigrants important are actually less likely to commit crimes than their native-born counterparts. Uh, the National Academy of Sciences uh, issued a report on this uh, just a couple of years ago, and they said immigrant neighborhoods have lower crime rates than than native-born neighborhoods. And so, these are all reasons to be more welcoming to immigrants and not more restrictive. Well, it sounds like there's reason for optimism here. If for no other reason, then there are actually a lot of tangible policy tools that can be manipulated. So at least there are a lot of options that it seems like you guys are laying out that are fairly reasonable, Dan, as you said, that aren't moving us in some dramatic new direction so much as getting us back to historical norms. As I've said in previous episodes, I always like to try to find a place of optimism and hope and end it there before anyone can ruin my parade. Uh, and we're just about out of time anyway. So I think I'll, I'll bring us to a close with that. Um, I do want to thank our guests for joining us. And I want to make sure that our listeners have the opportunity to keep up with your all's work online. So we'll just kind of go across the table. And if you guys want to share a Twitter handle or a, a website or a recent 
paper or, or article you've written, uh, just to give our listeners some place to go to, to learn more. People can follow me on Twitter at Daniel Griswold. And if you go to the Mercatus uh, website, uh, first go to the bridge, which is a wonderful display of all our recent work. But you can also click on a tab, Trade and Immigration, and you can find all our work in both those quiet, uncontroversial issues. (laughs) (laughs) And at the Niskanen Center, you can visit us at niskanencenter.org. And we have a bunch of different policy areas, so you can peruse those. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is KDP in D.C. I should note a little editorializing here. Uh, both of our guests today do have excellent Twitter accounts as a resource for following this issue in particular. I think that's often true of our podcast guests here, but uh, Christy and Dan do an excellent job of keeping up with the news so you don't have to read everything. I usually outsource my trade and immigration news to them both, and I encourage you to do the same. And as always, you can send me any questions, comments, concerns, or episode ideas on Twitter at Chad M. Reese, or email me at crees at mercatus.gmu.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>